think Tevez going to Juventus, what, what a coup that was for me. I mean, On a head-to-head -head battle, Atletico Madrid can do uh, more damage to Barcelona than the other way around. Either he's really blind or he's fixing the match. I, I can't see it any other way. I'm, I'm trying to get Sir Bob on my side here by saying City will win the Premier League. It, it is an upset. You would expect Man United to go and win there. Over a billion dollars was paid in transfer fees uh, between the clubs in, in Europe. It's football. It's damn football. Like Ferguson said, football. Bloody marvelous. Yeah, well, the celebration was, I can't believe I just scored against Mexico. Uh, at one point, Parma, I think it's only like 224 players under contract. So they're gonna throw me out of here, fellas. You're gonna get me arrested on your show. If you're a serious talent, you're going back and you're playing for Santos. You, you know, you're going back to, to play for, like, in Argentina for River Plate or Boca Juniors, or you're going to Europe. He looked like the Ryan Giggs of old. He was more creative than any player on the pitch. Um, he made Matter look stupid. He made Rooney look silly. Now, the Premier League is what the most exciting league out there. I think it's probably the best marketed league without a question. When you look at the draw for the, the Champions League, you kind of say, well, all the pieces kind of fell into place for everybody except City. I am your host, Joe Ucello. Sir Bob, Mike Orr, my co-host, Rob Rojas, my trusted co-host, Ben the Machine. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode 309 of Low Limit Football on this 12th of December, 2020. I'm your host, Joe Ucello, and tonight the participants are set for both Champions League and Europa League knockout stages. The draw to determine the pairings will be held on Monday. The Columbus crew take a huge blow to their MLS club chances as Darlington Nagby is ruled out due to COVID. And we close out our 2020 season with discussions of this and much, much more with our very special guest, BN Sports, Kalen Kyle, who will be joining us in just a little bit. But first, let me get my co-host in here, Mr. Roberto Rojas. Are you ready for the final show of 2020? I am ready. And I think also a lot of us are ready for that vaccine that's going to come. But my big question is, do we give it to the states that apparently want to secede from the United States? Because it's going to be difficult to try to, to give it to two different countries in, in one. But... Uh, well, well, I don't know. It's, it's it's weird on how they feel about that. Well, you, my friend, I don't you, know if we should give the vaccines to succeeded states. Well, if they do secede from the union, um, Pfizer's located in Connecticut, so I would imagine we're on the right side of the union <laughs> if, it, <laughs> if it happens. But uh, I don't foresee any type of secession. Um, this is this is all a done deal. Uh, you know, it's just. Crazy times in the United States, my friend. You know, COVID, COVID brain is affecting absolutely everybody, and it's not limited to um, politicians. It's, it's all over the place. But like you said, we do have a vaccine. Finally, the FDA approved it here for use in the United States uh, just last night. And uh, needles and arms expected here in the United States on Tuesday. England's already ahead of the game, and they've already started to inoculate their, um, their, their citizens. So uh, hopefully there's some light at the end of this awful awful tunnel that we've been going through um and hopefully you know less people pass away more people survive and 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 are able to see that vaccine and and are able to live their lives so um let's uh let's get to it my friend the final show of 2020 uh and it is going to be your honor my friend for trivia for trivia so uh why don't you hit me with it yes so it's going to be a long trivia answer well answers i should say but mm -hmm. i think it'll be an interesting one 
So with the end of the year, it's always interesting to see, you know, you get your Ballon d'Or list, you get to see who's in contention for being the best players in the world, the most expensive, that kind of thing. You always like seeing lists, those end of the year lists uh, mm-hmm. that we see in 2020. Mm-hmm. Despite it being such a weird year, I was stumbling upon transfer market the other day. And because of that, and I think I know what you're going to go with this, I want you to name me the 10 most expensive players, or should I say, the most valuable players by transfer market at the moment. So I just want you to give me 10 names that according to, you don't have to give me how much they're worth on market value. Okay. I just want to give you, just want me to give you 10 names, doesn't have to be in order, of the most valuable players in the world according to transfer market. All right. All right. I'll try to give you some names rundown at the end of, uh, at the, end of the show. Um, I'm, I'm sure I can get about two or three. But uh, ten. Uh, oh wow, you're so confident. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, 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 there, you know, one name popped into my mind immediately, um, and and I know that he's a shoe in in the top ten. Um, but uh, yeah, no, but you, you think think very good of the, not the best players in the world, mind right. you, the, mo- the, the, the most, most valuable. Yes, exactly. So uh, there's a lot of factors into that. I'm with you. I, I got you. I know. So. Let's um let's table that for a moment and let's talk about uh, our opening thoughts tonight. And for me, this one hits home hard um, because and you've heard me talk about my origins in in watching soccer. Um, you know, watching the '78 World Cup with my dad, watching the final. Um, again, '78 World Cup. I was just six, so I don't remember too much about the game itself, but I do remember going to watch it on closed circuit TV. The 82 World Cup, however, was something that was on television. Um, It was something that was accessible. It was in Spain, so it was something that was in the middle of the day in the United States. And as a 10-year-old child, um, something that I do recall, you know, pretty well. Um, And two weeks ago on Wednesday, the world lost what we termed a god, if you remember, in, um, in Diego Maradona. Two weeks to the day, uh, I lose my childhood hero, um, and I'm speaking of Paolo Rossi, the the Italian hero the, of the '82 World Cup in Spain, passed away on Wednesday afternoon from complications from lung cancer. Um, it, it's something that for me hit home because he's the first true player I looked up to as a child, um, you know, and and remembering the the joy of of the 82 world cup and, and winning that, um, you know, and, and being an Italian American, but somebody that was very close to my Italian heritage, even to this day, um, it was something, it was something of pride, something of joy. And, and, um, and, and it just sucks. You know, it was so typical 2020 that, it, you know, it's almost like I'm at the point now where I, I want to just say, take, take Pele, put him in a bubble somewhere in a building um, and seal the building off because we've got to get him to 2021 at this point because I don't know that the world wants to handle another loss of a legend. And, and many, you know, many don't regard Paolo Rossi as a legend, but to me he is. Um, again, the hero of the 82 World Cup scoring six goals in six days, if you think about it. Um, and, and uh, you know, to, to lead Italy to that final and actually, so, and I went back and looked, Scoring six goals in a row for the Italian national team. He started with a hat trick against Brazil. Um, he scored two more goals against Poland, a team that they tied 0 0, and then um, scored the opening goal against West Germany in the final uh, in a 3 1 victory against West Germany. Along the way, 
in the last four teams that they had to play, beating the previous three World Cup champions. Um, and if you look back, it was 70 was Brazil, 74 was West Germany, and 78 obviously was Argentina. And Italy and Paolo Rossi beat those teams on the way, uh, and, and also a Poland side that was incredibly good up until that point, had not lost a match in the tournament, had not given, had only given up one goal in the entire process. And here they lose to Italy 2-0 on a, on a Paolo Rossi brace. Um, brings that trophy home to Italy, something that they hadn't won since 1938. And it was something, it was a, it was a moment of joy both for, for the nationals, you know, the national team, the people of Italy. Um, I, I remember, you know, being here and seeing the celebrations myself. And it was uh, something of, of legend for me. And, you know, he also did it at Juventus. He was on the team at the uh, 85 Heisel match against Liverpool, uh, a match that Juventus won the uh, the European Championship, now the Champions League. Um, he was in the starting 11 for that match where um, Michel Platini actually scored the goal, and that was in 85. Uh, Paolo Rossi had a stretch of about 70, from 76-77 to about 85-86, where he was one of the top players in the world. Um, you know, leading into Diego Maradona and, and his reign at the 86 World Cup and, and moving on. Um, and it's just, it, it's something that is, you know, you and I had a great discussion about um, the bridge, the bridge from uh, Pele to Diego Maradona. And we talked about great, great players in that bridge. Johan Cruyff, we talked about Mario Kempis, who won the 78 World Cup. We talked about Paolo Rossi, and we talked about players like... Um, uh, Marco van Basten and, and and a few others and just just some incredible incredible names and for me Paolo Rossi for what he did in that small window of time and again he was a player that was plagued by injuries so we not that I'm not that I'm saying he was Ronaldo like but he was Ronaldo like in that regard he had a very small window of very high success um, and for me personally is a legendary player and somebody that um, I'll look upon forever. Uh, I know, obviously, in the chat, we've, we've lost another great in Alejandro Sabella, who also um, passed away uh, this past week, and he was the coach of the uh, the Argentinian uh, World Cup team in 2014. They, he led to the finals. Um, you know, it's amazing how the loss of life these days in sports hits us a little bit harder because COVID is always in the back of our minds. And that's always the first question everyone asks. Did he pass away from COVID? Did he pass away from COVID? And and in this case, no, but um, it always seems like these particular passings uh, seem to hit a little harder. Um, and, and they're, they tend to sting a little bit more because we, we feel that tie. I'm at an age now where these are the players that I grew up with as a child. And every time you hear of, of, of a player like this passing away, uh, whether it be Maradona, whether it be whether it be Paolo Rossi, I feel like a piece of my childhood gets taken from me, um, and that's why it starts to sting with me. So, you know, I want to throw over to you for your thoughts, Rob, and I and I'd also like to, your thoughts, seeing that the you know because you and I are a few years apart in age, and these are the players that that sting for me that that like I said take away my childhood. What is that player for you? Who is who would be that player? I mean, I know Kobe Bryant would be one of them for you, but I'm talking about mm-hmm. in the world of of soccer. Where who is that player for you? Right. So I'm 23. I just turned 23 last week, actually. Um, So obviously, thank you. (laughs) So obviously, you know, I I was the generation of Ronaldinho. Um, Lionel Messi came in, you know, he had the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo. And, you know, for me, and, you know, God forbid that we we will see many more years of of both of them living, mind you, Mm -hmm. and, and Ronaldinho as well. 
you know, those are the ones that are going to be more attached because you talk about the bridge that connected the likes of Rossi, Pele, Maradona, Cruyff, et cetera, et cetera. For Messi and Ronaldo, they dominated the entire sport for a decade. Mm-hmm. So those are the names that were attached. Like, you know, they started becoming big at around 2006, 2007. And I was 10. I was 10. I'm 23, and they're still at the top of the game mm. right now. So those are the ones. I can't tell you who is the be- I mean, you, I have my own particular case. I think Messi for me is, is better, honestly, but that's a different story. But in any case, those are the ones. Yeah. Those are the ones that will be on top of them. Those are the idols that people had, you know, similar to what they were for Pele, for for you with Rossi, for Maradona, uh, Zidane, original Ronaldo, those kind of players. Um, so, yeah, I, I completely understand how you feel about, you know, someone that obviously gave a lot to, to you, for for the people of, of Italy, from where you come from, you know, the fact that you were blessed to see, you know, Italy World Cup champions twice, not just once, mm-hmm. but after winning the World Cup for after so many years, that gives a it gives a special thought to to the people that maybe were not alive to see Italy win the World Cup in the 30s. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is the one, and then obviously the one in 2006 with that team. Um, it just gives people that kind of nostalgia. So no, I mean this is a huge loss for for Syria, for the culture community, for Italy, for some for a legend that will always be remembered. Pablito, as, as they like to call him, mm-hmm. um, you know, someone that. You know, just reading his story of someone who came from, I think he was banned as well, early in his in the late in the late seventies and the eighties. He had like a betting scandal, and that means he was disqualified yes. from playing, even though he was innocent. And then from him to go to the World Cup, apparently in poor shape, and Italy had that bad start. They they drew all three games for them to beat three former world champions. Uh, and him scoring six goals on the way to win the golden boot, the golden ball, and the World Cup, which is I think he's the only player to have done all those uh, a, 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 a clean sweep, um, is incredible. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely incredible for him to to do that. So yeah, it's a, it's a huge loss for the community and and uh, yeah, it's so young as well, 60, 64. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. It's uh, yeah, he's he'll always be remembered as one of the greats. Um, so I'll have to retract in saying that maybe he isn't a legend. No, I, I think he is absolutely a legend in every right. Also, adding the Ballon d'Or um, after the World Cup as well in '82. Um, the the scandal you talk about is the Totonero scandal, um, which had him suspended initially for three years from Italian football. Then it was reduced reduced to two on a on an appeal, but it was involving 20 players over 11 clubs. He always admitted, um, he, he never um, admitted guilt. He was always professes innocence in that one. But, um, and like you said, um, he, he immediately was brought onto the 82 world cup team by Berzot. And it was, uh, it was, it was rusty to start for him. But then, like you said, he really found his form and, uh, and then the six goals, you know, it, it really creates, and these are the moments really that create legendary status. Don't they Rob? Where, um, a player, like you know, the the players that are the the champions rise to the top, and and they rise to the top in the moment, and and this was kind of Rossi's moment, and um, you know, reading back about his career, and 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 really signing at Juve at 16 years old, but then obviously suffering injuries, he went to Vicenza to uh, to, to to kind of you know build himself up. Serie B, he led the Serie B in scoring, uh, gets them promoted, and then leads the Serie A in scoring on a second-place finish for Vicenza for them in that year. I, I, want, I want to say it was 78 or uh, 77, 78, somewhere in there. And, 
you know, then goes back to Juventus. Like I said, he was at, he was at Heysel in '85 for the uh, for the championship there, where you know we all know about the the tragedy that happened at Heysel. Um, so he's added a lot of, of of awards to his life as as he went on. Uh, one of the things that that really caught me is is you know you remember the, some of the names of of the players that win these World Cups when when they happen. You know they kind of get you know embedded into your memory. Um, and reading about his funeral, which was uh, which was actually today at the time of the recording here on Saturday, um, and, and and the excerpt from ESPN that I read: uh, Marco Tardelli, Antonio Cabrini, Giancarlo Antonioni, Alessandro Altobelli, Franco Causio, Fulvio Colovati, and Giuseppe Bergomi were among the pallbearers. And these are all names that you know are are synonymous with Italian football greatness, based on what was done in that '82 World Cup. It, and, you know, just to, to read those names, it's just, wow. You know, it brings back a lot of, of childhood memories. And, you know, for, for Italian fans, for Italian footballing fans, he'll never be forgotten. He went on to a uh, broadcasting career with Sky where most reports from the people that have worked with him at Sky say that he was absolutely nothing but a gentleman and a pleasure to work with. And, and we hear a lot of that from a lot of different people in the broadcasting world. And we're going to get to talk to Kaylin Kyle in, in just a little bit. And, and we can ask her, her her opinion. We always like to ask the being question, so we might ask that one to her. But it is something that, you know, even all the way through life, he carried himself on as as a person of, of respect. And and obviously it played back to him. So um, certainly a massive, massive loss for, for the Italian soccer community. Um, you know, again, 2020 claims another legend in, in our in our regards. And uh, and, you know, may rest in peace and. And hopefully this just this awful year just ends soon. Um, that's just the way it is. So let's um, let's table our discussion uh, for the moment and let's get our guest in here because we had the opportunity to speak with Kalen Kyle from Being Sports, uh, covering anything from and everything from MLS to uh, La Liga. Uh, you know, even her time uh, as an Olympian, which I, I'm, I'm excited to find out about. So, without further ado, the Kalen Kyle interview. Joining us now on Low Limit Football from BN Sports, Kaylin Kyle. Kaylin, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. I wanted to open the questioning real quick uh, with, on the Madrid Derby. We saw a fantastic match, 2-0 victory for Real Madrid over Atleti in this one. Atleti really doubling their goal concession output for the season, which is amazing in 65 minutes. What is your reaction overall to the match itself? Yeah, for the match itself, it, w- it was interesting to see. Obviously, Diego Simeone came out with the same tactics he's gone with pretty much all season in both Champions League and La Liga, but then played it very differently today. Played very defensive-minded, went through with five at the back instead of switching to, to three in the attack. So it looked, well, it was, it was a, a 5-3-2 with Suarez and Felix just dropping in behind Suarez. So very defensive-minded, but then also very defensive and then trying to play on the back. Two recipes for disaster, obviously that one, which led to the first goal was Benzema getting on the score sheet with the lost possession down that left-hand side. So um, interesting from Diego Simeone. And then just tactically the substitutes that he made in the second half, obviously we saw Lodi warming up in that first half. So we thought he was going to come on. They are going to switch back to their typical 4-4-2. They didn't. They stuck to what they were playing. And then subbing Zhao Felix off subbing Suarez off. It was just really interesting. I mean, the game was really close. Obviously, you saw Lamar miss that easy opportunity, which we saw him tap in a few weeks ago. So the game could have been changed. I just feel like tactically Diego Simeone got it wrong from the get-go. 
I, I couldn't agree with you more. And for me, I was surprised at the way Joao Felix and Luis Suarez weren't even getting any touches on the ball. And, and for me, I think a big credit to the way this match played out goes to the midfield of Cruz Modric and Casemiro with the way they were able to implement their press. They really didn't give a chance uh, for Atleti to counterattack, almost pressing uh, Atleti into that five-man backfield instead of letting them get to that three-man backfield that they wanted to play. What were your thoughts on the play of, of the Real Madrid midfield, especially in, in terms of how they affected the match? Yeah, I think in the midfield they were fantastic, but all over the park they were fantastic. Obviously, Carvajal coming back into the squad after being out due to injury. Ramos uh, having his second game with the team. Obviously, the midweek match with his first uh, one back after injury, and he looked phenomenal. I mean, this, the difference in this team, like everyone was like, crisis, um, out with Zidane, he's not good enough. And I said this last week on the podcast, Um like they're sitting basically top of the table in Champions League. They're bit like nipping at the heels now of first place in La Liga. And they always get the job done. You can look at Luka Modric in that midfield. I mean, the amount of games that he has played, I think, I think he's what, 35. And now I would never say, you know, call someone out for age because I'm 32 and I feel like, you know, you age like a fine wine. But Modric is aging like a fine wine. He's playing absolutely fantastic. And the older you get, the smarter you have to get because of your, you know, your body's aging. You have to be, your movement has to be better. But just the ability of those three players to be able to cover spaces. I mean, when one goes, the other one covers. When, you know, one's pressing, there's bring in behind there's doubling down I mean they were absolutely fantastic but that doesn't happen without you know your wingers like Vasquez I mean Vasquez starting out on that right hand uh, side obviously Carvajal now back in so instead of dropping him because he was absolutely fantastic back there um, Zinedine Zidane moved him up top which was amazing so defensively he already knows that he's going to be switched on because he's been playing in a fullback position for the last couple weeks and now offensively he added so much to this game I mean his defensive work in that final third that led to Benzema's shot just outside the box that um, All Black did save I mean the whole team in general just the ability to fill in positions the ability to fight for one another um, and then tactically was again just making those tough decisions do I go with Rodrigo or do I give Vasquez that start up top, which which he deserved because he defensively playing that fullback position, he was so great. So hats off to, to Zinedine Zidane. I mean, the amount of pressure a manager is under, whether when you're at a big club like Real Madrid, and to just, he just looks so just like whatever on the sideline, like so laid back, so like cool. Like I wish I could have played for a manager like that back in the day. Well, I think it's important, really, because I think when you have a manager that's like that, unlike another manager that I think is going under maybe another crisis in Ronald Koeman at Barcelona, it's important, and it goes a long way. So going into this result, Caitlin, you know, obviously Atletico are still top of the league. You know, they have a game in hand. Yeah. I think it's a three-point difference between them and Real Madrid. So this is to say that Real Madrid automatically took the league uh, because of this win. So. Because of those results that Real Madrid got over the last week and Atleti qualifying to the Champions League and now this loss, would you say that this result helps more towards Real Madrid in their course for the league? Or do you feel like it's much worse for Atletico Madrid uh, in this league campaign? No, I don't think so. I mean, Atletico Madrid, you've seen the tactical shift of how they've been playing. I think this comes down to the manager's tactical decisions for in-game decisions and then substitutes that led to this result because they had the opportunities in the game. <clears throat> Excuse me, but they came out flat in that first 45. They were pinned in by Real Madrid's high press with that 4-3-3, that suffocating high press. 
And instead of finding the solution of maybe going to that route one football for, for five or six minutes, they, they kept trying to play it at the back. So what happens is when you keep trying to do something that's not working, you're still going to get the same result, and which led to them playing so defensively and, and tracking back because offensively they were exhausted. They would get the ball forward, and they couldn't get numbers in and around to support Suarez and Jao Felix, and they get put right back down their throat. So when you're playing that, when you're playing like that, and you're keeping and, and Carvajal and Mendy keeping the fullbacks or the wingbacks, excuse me, honest in Carrasco's and Trippier. They didn't find a solution. They kept trying to play out of the back instead of, you know, getting numbers into the midfield, getting numbers into the attack. And what it came down to as well is that back five dropping far too early in that first 20, 25 minutes. I mean, when Real Madrid were trying to, well, when Real Madrid were playing out, the five would drop, leave the midfield isolated, and leave the two front runners in Jao Felix and Suarez isolated up top. So it literally took three passes for Real Madrid to break that press. And then it was like happy days. The midfielder, and like you alluded to with Kroos, Modric, and Casemiro, looked fantastic today because they had the space to play in. As a midfielder, that is one of those dream games that you want to play in. Time and space on the ball. You can get your, your head up. You can look. You can either make that switching diagonal pass. You can play through team parts because Atletico Madrid, they kind of looked all over the place because tactically I, I think they were not caught off guard, but they were like, are we sending our wing backs on? Are we playing five through the midfield? Are we going to switch tactically back to that four four two? Like it just looked like decision making was all over the place. Um, and so, if we're going, sorry, I'm going back to your question. I promise you. But if we're going back to who's you know this game bigger for Real Madrid? I mean, you look at the last three games. I mean, they've scored five goals, have kept three clean sheets, both in league play and Champions League, finished top of their group in Champions League, obviously beating uh, Gladbach. So going into the round of 16, they're, they're sitting pretty, whereas Atletico Madrid were sitting, you know, top of the table. They they were, could have finished top of the table. Obviously, Bayern Munich um, played, you know, a lesser team. Atletico Madrid couldn't get the job done then. But it's still, they're, they've punched their ticket through to that round of 16, still sitting top of the table. I think they conceded before this game two goals all season, so they've had four on the season. So they're scoring goals. They're, they're not leaking goals. I think this is just one of those games where it's a one-off game, maybe fatigue set in, maybe Diego Simeone kind of caved under pressure, which he doesn't normally do. But, again, it comes down to, to sloppy goals. I mean, you look at the set-piece goal from Atletico Madrid, that they conceded and it's so unlike uh, Diego Simeone's team they base their team around being defensively tough to break down being defensively tough to score goals on on set pieces and obviously you had a player slip on the set piece that Casemiro put in the back of the net but you also had two other players that were just standing in kind of no man's land so I think there's a lot of moving parts but I never would say crisis here because look at Real Madrid a week and a half ago everyone wanted Zidane out now they're trying to build a statue of him post this match so it's <laughs> football's like the funniest game but it's the best game for this reason it's the what it's like what Joe says you know what have you done for me lately and then all of a sudden you can be the bad enemy or you could be the the hero of the town so yeah it can go a long way in what can happen in a week but Joe I actually want to jump into this because 
you know, we look at Atleti's schedule. They still have to wait until who they get in the Champions League draw on Monday. The only one result that I'm seeing is that they play Real Sociedad on the 22nd. So, Joe, I mean, certainly this game is not going to be a huge slip-up for them for the next few matches. Well, I mean, it's, it's early to, to, uh, to talk about controlling your own destiny, but let's be honest. Atleti controls their own, their own destiny. Sociedad is the team that's chasing them. We'll see what they end up doing tomorrow in their match, if they can retake the top spot. But Atleti ha- or will have two games at hand on them. So, Atleti, in terms of La Liga's race, is still in control of their own destiny. And like I said, it's it's still very, very early to to talk in those terms, but it is it is the truth. Um, you know, they can they can withstand a loss to Real Madrid here and still control what they what they want to do and how they want to handle things. Complicating that will certainly be the Champions League because of the the opponents that they're gonna end up facing. And and you think about their opportunity really they end up drawing 1-1 to Bayern Munich on match day five in in the Champions League that was an opportunity to maybe take some points especially from a b-side Bayern that traveled that pretty much was guaranteed moving Mm -hmm. on to the next round Um, but now the difference and I think about this in terms of of Barcelona as well when we go back to look at La Liga now instead of uh, instead of facing teams like Mönchengladbach or facing Porto or facing you know they obviously Atleti wouldn't get a Sevilla but maybe a Lazio or something they're going to end up with a Juventus they're going to end up with Chelsea, they're going to end up with a Liverpool, a Man City. I mean, massive, massive spots that they're going to be stuck into. So this is, you know, Atleti, I think, is unfortunately in a bad spot Champions League wise, but in in the league spot, they can kind of brush this off. They're going to get them back again at the Wanda. So they'll they'll still have a chance to redeem themselves and still control their own destiny, Robin. And, And I think that they're going to be I think they're going to be okay. They should in Cholo style. They should probably brush this result off and and focus on the next match. 100 percent. And I think for Bar, I I, I just. Yeah, go ahead. Can I just jump in really quick? Sorry, I'm like, I'm taking over today. (laughs) Go ahead. Go ahead. No problem. But you look at someone like you look at someone like Zhao Felix, though. Mm -hmm. And I had said it in our pregame show. What does Zhao Felix have to be on in order for Atletico Madrid to be successful? And no, you look at all the other goal scorers that have been in and around. But Zhao Felix was bought for, I think it was $140 million to Atletico Madrid to come and, and perform week in and week out and perform a big against big clubs. So in order, I think he'll be one of the best players in the world if he can perform against the big clubs, if he can step up and make a stamp on games like today. They needed him to take this game by the neck and, and really go for it. And I didn't see that from him today. Now you can go back to, yes, the tactics of, from Diego Simeone, didn't allow Zhao Felix to be successful. But in order to be the best, I mean, you see it with Cristiano Ronaldo, you see it with Messi. Even when their team is struggling, they find a way to win and they find a way to put the ball in the back of the net. And we just don't see that with Zhao Felix sometimes against these bigger clubs. And obviously, you know, it's a, it's a good segue to my next question, obviously, you know, talking about Barcelona, because if we're talking about a team that's in crisis, we got to talk about what's going on in Barcelona, you know. Kind of in a similar situation as to what Zidane was in a couple weeks ago, you know, the fact that he has now three games to essentially value what's going to happen in the season. You know, they play Levante tomorrow. I mean, you know, they're, they're way back in terms of the league. I think they're four points behind the final spot, but they do have a couple games in hand. So, you know, and then getting beaten at midweek to Juventus, meaning, as, as Joe alluded, they will have to play one of those big teams from England or, or Borussia Dortmund, Bayern, Juventus, PSG, whoever. You know, this is super important for, for Ronald Koeman's side. So I just want your thoughts on just how do you assess Barcelona's situation at the moment, especially now, because, as you mentioned, the whole price tag deal 
you know, we look at players such as your Griezmanns, your Dembele. I mean, he's injured, but he's not in there. But your Dijong, you know, those players who came with that big price tag, they need to step up now if Barcelona have any chance for them to turn around their season. No, 100%. But then you look at Ronald Koeman. Obviously, he's stuck on that 4-2-3-1. He's been playing with Busquets and Frankie de Jong in that double pivot role. I don't think that they can play together in that role. I think Busquets, you know, with age, he's not not that he's not aging like a fine wine, but he just can't cover the ground that he used to. And unfortunately, when you're playing in this system, you need double pivots to be able to cover the ground because you want your, you know, your Trincaus, your Pedris, your Messi, your Griezmanns, your breakaways to be able to get into the attack in Dembele when he's healthy. But unfortunately, too, when you look at Griezmann, I mean, he has been flying as of late, getting on the goal, goal scoring sheet. Then you look at Martin Braithaway, the last four games, he has three, or uh, last five games, I think he has four goals. Could be wrong on that, but and then he's not even featured. You have a, a Trincao that comes in on that right-hand side midweek versus Juve. Now, again, you can chalk this down through. They're already round to, or already through to the round of 16. Um, they were the only team that were perfect in Champions League until this result. But, I, again, I think Ronald Coleman, when you look at what the product that he's putting out, obviously loads of injuries. You have PK that's out. You have Sergio Dest that's come into that fullback role who's done pretty well. You had Jordi Alba that was out for a bit. Now he's back. But then you had Pjanic that's come out into the media saying, I'm not happy that I'm not playing. You have just so many issues that they can't keep behind closed doors. And unfortunately, that affects the play. It started with Messi when we first came in, but that was always going to happen. Then obviously players that you brought in, unhappy. Then you saw Griezmann, you know, I'm not getting played in my right positioning. That's why I'm not on the score sheet. You just have all these players, instead of having this conversation behind closed doors, they're going to the media about it, which as a player, you just don't do. You have these you have these conversations behind closed doors, or if you're not happy, you maybe move away from the situation or ask for, you know, to be uh, dealt to another team in a transaction when the window's open. But I just think with this Barcelona side, I just feel like the identity of Barcelona, it's not the old identity that we've known for Barcelona and that's never going to be the case because you have the players that are legends there that they haven't filled those roles obviously um, you have a Frankie de Jong that's been playing you know not in his natural position they've had him as an eight they've had him as a 10 then they've had him as a deep lying midfielder by himself now they have him as a double pivot um, he's tried to bring in youth that has worked um, as well I mean Pedri's done extremely well you've had Coutinho that was playing okay then not playing um, fantastic. So I just feel like there's so many more issues in this Barcelona squad, but it's not on field. I feel like it's off field, just like having that camaraderie of wanting to fight for one another, wanting to play for one another. Um, and again, you look at their group in Champions League, it, it wasn't the hardest group. So for them to be almost nearly perfect isn't a shock. But then look at them in La Liga. I mean, halfway down the table, you don't even see them on the first page when we throw it up at BN Sports. It's like, it's actually alarming to not see Barcelona in the top three. You know, you bring up a great point, Kaylin, about the double pivot role, about Sergio Busquets and his inability to cover that ground anymore. Um, and I know they brought in Mira Olympianich. There was much to be made about that transfer over the summer. I, my question to you is, does Barca right now regret getting rid of Artur, a, a, a player now that would be well-suited to, to kind of take over Busquets in that role and have the ability to cover more ground? Because as a Juventino, for me, one of the issues I always had with Pjanic is that he wasn't able to cover that ground. Um, he was magnificent on free kicks. You know, he was a very intelligent player, but he wasn't just, he just wasn't able to get up and down. And when they brought Artur in, I, I even said to Roberto, they basically just got a younger version of Pjanic. 
and and I was happy. It's true, yeah. Yeah, so so does does Barca regret that move looking back on it now? Well, Arturo wasn't happy at Barcelona. He was, you know, obviously in and out of the lineup. There's so many different managers that have come in, and he was never really solidified in that starting 11. And then, like you said, Pjanic and him are very similar. But the difference is, is Pjanic has done it at a higher level for many, many years, brings that experience, brings that consistency game in and game out. I mean, you look at him at Juve one of the best midfielders, one of the most consistent, and probably one of the first names that you would put on the the team sheet for every single match. So that says a lot about a player. But he was that single deep-lying midfielder for Juve, and now you have him as a double pivot, you have him not playing, you have Busquets starting over him. There's just no consistency in this Barcelona, and especially when you have the amount of um, injuries in that back line, you need to at least have one of your team parts not, not normal. Normal is not the word I'm looking for. But consistent. So what I mean by that is usually your back four rarely changes unless you you switch from uh, to three at the back or to four at the back um, or five at the back. So that's usually very very consistent. Your center backs are always remain the same. And again, you have a player like PK that is a leader on this team. Um, do I think his time is minimized at Barcelona 100%? Again, the age is a factor. He looks slow. His decision-making slow. But I just think I agree with your point, but I do think that they needed to bring in someone, you know, that you could put on that score sheet week in and week out, and they're not even doing it with him. So, yeah, I do think it's kind of a silly one because you, you have a player that's younger than Pjanic, but – Again, I'm a big Pjanic uh, fan. I love how he plays. So I was delighted when he came to Barcelona. But I guess you could make uh, an argument for both sides of that. And, and I'd echo that, too, because I loved him at, at, uh, at Juve. So I, I certainly, you know, I was sad to see him go, but I understood why he was going. I, I, you know, I want to I wanna kind of close with another question on Barcelona because obviously there, there needs to be some type of rebuild. Uh, you know, there's the, the issues at Barca are multiple, whether we're talking financial or, or uh, chemistry or coaching or anything there needs to be some sort of rebuild restructure reset at at barcelona my question to you is and i'm going to be a little controversial i guess with this and maybe even a little blasphemous if you're if you're a barcelona supporter do they start that process by selling lionel messi i think they have to um and it's not for any other reason if they if they don't sell him in that january transfer window he goes on a free uh come the end of 2020-21 season i think they're stupid not to sell them they need the money they need to start rebuilding at Barcelona do I think Messi is one of the best players in the world yes do I think he's always going to be one of the best players in the world 100% but I think Messi's time if Barcelona wants to turn Barcelona around they need to sell Messi for a big price tag they need to get maybe someone like Griezmann off the, the the wage bill as well they need to start selling these players that you know, Griezmann, you can make the argument, yeah, he's been performing the last three games, but where was he last season? Where was he the beginning of this season and the inconsistency of him? So I just think you look at the squad at Barcelona, and it's no disrespect to Messi. Like, obviously, I would love to see him end his career at Barcelona um, because, A, I think he deserves it. B, I think the people deserve it. But you can just tell by his body language and how he's been treated this last year and a half there. He's so unhappy with the board. He's so unhappy how they dealt with him this last offseason, obviously, with him in his contract. Uh, again, it was in his contract, so you can argue that point. But for what he's done for the club and what he's done for the community and what he's done for the sport in general, I think how they handled that was really sloppy and, and kind of disgusting, if I'm being honest. But 100%, if you want to rebuild this Barcelona squad, you need to get – obviously – 
the wages need to be figured out because they've already asked again the players to take another 30% pay cut, which is crazy. So they need to they need to get players that are big name players and big contract players off the wage bill. And why not Messi in January? Because he's going to again he's going to go on a free. And if you're Messi, looking at the situation now, you're sitting middle of the table, depending how they do in the round of 16 if they get knocked out, which I I highly think they will. Does Messi even want to stay around at Barcelona or does he want to go to a team? Maybe I don't think the EPL is a good move for him. Maybe PSG or maybe come over into the MLS um, and finish out his career, maybe winning a title somewhere else. I think that's probably something that a player of Messi's magnitude would want to do. Well, well, Caitlin, I actually do want to finish on that because, you know, if Messi were to leave in January, then who would step up? Because, you know, we still have Fati's injured. Inter Miami. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, that as well. But also, who steps up for Barcelona is what I mean as well. Like, who uh, steps up? I mean, you have you have players there. I was a big fan of Ricky Pouche, uh there, and then obviously Ronald Coleman was like, "You're not part of my plans. Go find another team." And and the kid, instead of going and finding another team, he said, "You know what? I'm going to fight for a starting position here." So that says that that kid wants to play for Barcelona. He wants to wear the crest. It doesn't matter how many minutes he gets or where he goes. So that is a player that I highly, highly respect. I would love to see him getting more minutes. Um, And again, you're starting to see him getting used um, um, as a substitute even more. You see Pedri um, and Trincao. I mean, the youth coming through Barcelona, they have there. So Gino Dest has been fantastic. Um, But I I do think that they need, you know, to get an out-and-out striker, whether that be a Mbappe, whether that be a Haaland, they need to get someone in this club that is going to score week in and week out, especially when you're losing someone of Messi. It's a game-changing performance. I mean, even when your team's playing like garbage, Messi steps up and puts in an amazing free kick or beats five or six players or gets taken in and around the box so and gets someone else on the score sheet. No doubt about it. Before we let you go, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about really more of a personal question. Um, you are the second Olympic medalist we've had on this show, the other being, the other being Javier Saviola um, from Argentina. I wanted to ask you about your experience at the London Olympics in 2012 on the road to winning the, the bronze medal for Canada. Oh, my God, it was incredible. It kind of doesn't feel real. Like, obviously... Um, I feel like we put women's uh, soccer on the map with the U.S. women's national team in that game at the Manchester United grounds. I mean, that game went to 4-3. Alex Morgan, obviously, with the dying goal in the dying minutes. Christine Sinclair with the hat trick. I mean, it was just talked about around the world. So I just it was just such a cool moment, something that, like, I'm so happy to be part of. The first question I always get was, like, what was the athlete village like? We weren't in the athlete village because, obviously, we were traveling, like, in and around England for all the matches. But I just remember our um, anthem and our flag coming down for the, the ceremony process, and I just started crying. And it was because of, like, all the hard work you put in, all the ups and downs you go through. I mean, there's more downs than up in sport. doesn't matter what sport you're playing. It was all worth it in that moment to hear your national anthem, to have that medal put around your neck. And to look into the crowd and see your parents that have literally traveled around the country and traveled around the world to support you and watch you and financially support you as well. It was just a really cool moment and, and something that money can't buy. So definitely one of my biggest accomplishments other than my, my two little boys um, is something that I'll never forget. Fantastic stuff. Kaylin, we want to thank you for coming on the show, helping us close out 2020 as a, it's our final show of the year. Um, Being sports has always been very, very generous and, and to us on the show we've been very very blessed and and you're just another example of it thank you very much tell everybody we said hello down in miami and uh hope to have you back soon i will
Thank you so much. And I'm honored that you guys are closing out 2020 with me. Let's hope 2021 is a better year. Amen. <laughs> yeah, Amen. I agree. <laughs> thanks again. Take care. <laughs> and special thanks again to Kaylin Kyle for joining us on the show. Rob, uh, one thing that we wanted to talk to Kaylin about, but we didn't get a chance to, was MLS Cup Final. And uh, we had one heck of a, of a final come at us last night uh, with the Columbus crew uh, posting a 3-0 victory over the Seattle Sounders. Uh, Lucas Zellerayan, the Argentinian, scoring two goals and an assist, leading the, his way to the MVP of the uh, of the match. Um, just a, a dominant performance by Caleb Porter's men, in, in, you know, at home. Um, I expected more out of Raul Ruiz Diaz, Nico Lodero, even Christian Rodan, and and they they just didn't provide what uh, what Columbus did. I, I mean, it was just it was kind of one way. It was. Um, they were very aggressive, high pressing. It was it was an excellent match. Uh, also, some credit goes to 19 year old Aiden Morris, who had to step in for Darlington Nagby and did a fantastic job uh, solidifying that defensive midfield um, and was really one of the keys. I believe, if I remember correctly, on the Derek Etienne goal, the second goal of the match, he was the key in, in, in picking up the turnover and getting that ball forward. Where then Etienne finished on the back door. Uh, great match overall and, uh, and a deserved champion, especially for a team that we were looking at just two, three years ago was leaving and going to Austin. So the team gets saved, the whole save the crew movement, they get saved and now they return a, a title to the people of Columbus. What were your thoughts on last night's match? No, as, as you said, it's a fairy tale ending. I think for a side that doesn't really want it to get something back on the map, you know, their first title in I think 12 years, I think we did see a Columbus side that was very assertive, very, uh, straightforward. You, you didn't see much of Seattle. They were just very unorganized in a way, and that came and that came into the into what Columbus was able to do. You know, you saw a great game from Etienne. You saw a great game from Moore. You saw two goals and assists from Zarahin. I mean, you know, you're seeing that kind of assertiveness from what Columbus and what Caleb Porter was able to do with this side. So yeah, no credit to them. I think you uh, demonstrated and explained it here in the opening segment. Um, yeah, no, I think it's well-deserved. And, and yeah, I think it just also shows how unpredictable this MLS season has become. I mean, yes, it's been a weird year for, for a lot of these teams, you know, teams that have been hit by COVID, the season being completely changed around and whatnot. So, yeah, no, I mean, more than anything else, I think we did see a, a really deserved winner in the end. And, and credit to Columbus and credit to the entire city of, of Columbus for winning another MLS title. Yeah, according to the New York Times, I was reading an article this morning about it. Um, this season started the earliest uh, they had ever started. They actually started the season on, Jan on February 29th, and they had the big four-month gap. This is the latest they've ever played MLS Cup Final, uh, being the 12th of December. So it's just been a very, very strange season. Like you said, they had the uh, MLS's back tournament uh, in Orlando. That seems so long ago, but it was just over the summer. And uh, just uh, an incredible way to close out a, a, a difficult season, but um, certainly a deserved winner. And, and you and I had the had the uh, the pleasure of covering Columbus when they came to Hartford to to play Toronto FC. And you and I noted that this team was was very very strong defensively. And you know, although that night uh, Toronto FC did did what they needed to do to kind of you know open up the match in the second half and and then ultimately win the game. Um, and at that time, also, if I remember correctly, they'd conceded. Uh, Columbus had only conceded like eleven goals in thirteen matches, or something. It was some some fantastic number. I mean, this was one of the best, if not the best, defensive teams in MLS this season, and uh, and and it showed, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's very important for them to 
to go back into these type of matches where you need to win those games, and and, and, and it showed for Columbus. Yeah, no doubt about it. So congratulations to the Columbus crew uh, and winning an MLS Cup for 2020, their 25th uh, season of MLS. Uh, fantastic story. We've got one more story that we want to talk about, Rob, before we uh, close it up for the year, and that's the, what happened in the Champions League uh, midweek on Tuesday there was reports of a racist remark made by a Romanian referee at, um, at one of the assistants at uh, Basixashir in the Basixashir PSG match. And uh, there was a, a confrontation. Dembaba was, was got, got into a shouting match um, that, uh, that the fourth official on the sideline used a, a racial slur to describe one of the coaches on the, on, uh, the Turkish side. And ultimately saw the two teams in unison walk off the pitch uh, in protest. Uh, originally, they were going to walk off. They were going to pull this referee out and move him to the VAR booth. And then that was not going to be good enough. And they ultimately abandoned the match only to return the next day and uh, and see uh, PSG win the match. Um, as reports are coming out uh, about what had happened, apparently there are reports that... Not, that one, the the Romanian referee Sebastian Coltescu used uh, a racial slur against uh, Pierre Wibo, the um, the assistant coach over at Besiktasir. But there's also reports that there were racial slurs from the bench directed at describing the uh, Romanian referee. So, I mean, obviously we have a, a big problem with. Um, and I'm sorry, Pierre Weibo is uh, is one of the players that not uh, not not a manager, but I believe. No, no, sorry, he was assistant. My fault. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. So, um, so uh, again, you know, we obviously have a big problem here with with racism. Still, I'd like your the, the your um your reaction to the response. For me, uh, I thought the response is what we've been waiting for. When when something like this happens, when something racially motivated happens on the pitch. Um, we've seen we've seen players go off in tirades. We, we, you know, Mario Balotelli comes to mind. A couple a couple of others as well. But when this happens, to see both teams walk off the pitch, I, you know, this is one of the steps forward. I think we needed in removing racism when when teams in unison walk out. However, I want to throw the caveat out there. Um, what if this was the M- uh, all right MLS Cup final? What if this was Champions League final? What if this was in front of? 70,000 in a, in a packed stadium on a, on a Tuesday night. What happens then? Do the teams still walk off? I don't know that they do. I hope they do. And I think that, like I said, that doing, doing that is the right response, but I wonder if it happens under normal circumstances. What was your reaction to what happened and, and what, uh, you know, what's going on with this? Well, let me ask you this. Why would it matter the type of match? If you still, if you have the dignity to do such a thing because of this injustice that occurred, it shouldn't. Shouldn't it not matter? It shouldn't. It should not matter. But it draws against the player's will. So you know, think about it. If you've been, if you've been playing all your life, you're in the Champions League final. You, you know, this is the place you've been trying to get to for 20 years. All the hard work, all the practice, all the extra practice, all the fitness training. The injuries, the, everything that's gone into this moment that you've worked your entire life for, and you're going to walk off the pitch because someone else had something said to them. I, I mean, that's what I mean. Is the you know, and and the stadium is full, and the crowds and everything is is the intestinal fortitude there 
for PSG to join Basixa Share to walk off, knowing that Basixa Share cannot advance in the tournament, knowing that PSG has already advanced in the tournament, is is the strength of the players there? I I, I hope to say it is. I just I we've never pre- been presented with that scenario, or we, at least we haven't yet. But I would like to think that it would happen that way, and at the same time. Um, you know, I, th- I think if the circumstances were different, I'm not sure, but I think this is the proper response. I think this is what needed to happen. So that's that's my point with that, is that I don't know that it happens with a full stadium in the Champions League final, you know, on a, on a, on a Sunday afternoon or Saturday afternoon that this happens this particular way. That's only my point, Rob. Yeah, no, and, and going back to the entire incident, I think it was, you know... For me, at least, you know, to have that kind of dignity and to understand that this is this is not right, you know. So no one should be ever treated against officials that are supposed to protect these players, you know. And they're supposed to be the, or at least the, the officials, regardless of if they're a fourth official assistant or main referee, they are there as a level of authority, you know. And I think that's where you feel as if, though, why are you feeling this sort of injustice from a person of authority, it, it shouldn't it shouldn't work out. I mean, yes, you can go into the cultural aspects and what the term black means in Romanian and what they, you know, allegedly said to, to um, the referee as well or to the, the fourth official. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I think honestly, I don't think a, I don't think a fourth official should ever call anyone by that. I, I think if you have the the knowledge of whoever you want to speak to, you you should know who you're dealing with. You should know the names of the of the people you're going to have to deal with. I'm not saying the, the starting lineup because that could change in whatever ha- matter, but at least try to have some sort of idea of like who the coaching staff you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like if that if it wasn't said in that mark, and yes, I, I understand, you know, why call this one a black one instead of a white one? You never say a white one, mm-hmm. you know. It shouldn't be that way either. Just, just if you know the name, just say the name. It's, it's honestly that easy, or, or, or something. But don't go into that kind of racial aspect. It's that 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 just doesn't work out, and you get an incident like this. Agreed. It's, you know, I believe I, I, don't, I can't remember if I heard Chris Williams say it or if I heard Brian Dunseth say it, but somebody, one of them, had said that these officials, before they hit the pitch, are given basically a dossier on every single person that's supposed to be there. So every player, every manager, the you know the, the fitness people, everybody that's going to be on the pitch and accessible, they're given their name, they're given a photo of them as well. So um, to suggest that Coltescu didn't know who he was talking about or to, you know, as, is, is not a defense. He should have known who he was talking about, and he should have been able to say th- the assistant over there or that manager or Pierre Webo, he should have been that able to guy, that, that guy. That guy, yes. To use the term "black" was was certainly you know the the flashpoint um, of this, and and what sent Dembaba into his fury that we you know we all saw on television. Uh, the key here too is that you got to hear what was being said because the stadium was empty. So there was you know if we saw that melee break out on the side of the pitch in a full stadium, we would have never known. Um, what was what was going on until you know things had come off? Maybe somebody had spoken to somebody, and then you would have heard something about it. So, the the benefit of empty stadium play on this one was that you actually heard what was going on. Um, 
and again, you know, I, I, it certainly was not the appropriate way. And like you said, a person uh, in a position of power, being the fourth official, to be able to do something to do something like that is is totally just out of the out of their mind. Uh, I also agree with uh, Basik Sashir saying that no, he can't go to the the VAR booth because that person is still in effect, you know, affecting the game. So we don't want him in here at all. If he's going to be like that, then we don't want him in here at all. And, and I think that was the right move as well as to protest even him going up to the booth. Um, you know, ultimately, uh, like we said, uh, PSG does win the match. Uh, we're going to see what happens. This crew has been pulled from officiating, I believe, any other matches uh, in, in the meantime. And, and we'll have to see what happens. But I think, like I said, this was the, the, the response. This is where we needed to be, where players in unison joined to fight racism truly. Okay, not not taking the knee before starting the match or something like that. This was truly in the middle of the game, walking off the pitch, um, and we needed to see it. I think we needed to see it, and I'm glad. I'm not glad that the the incident happened. I'm glad the response happened. So, um, let's table that discussion as our last discussion of 2020, my friend. A crazy year that it has been. Um, and again, uh, the last story, you know, partially affected because of COVID. So it's it's very 2020. Let's go back to the uh, the trivia question, my friend. You asked a great uh, trivia question about transfer market. Yes, I did. So to close off the year, as you know, we, as I talked about, it's the time of the year where we get the end of the year list, the best of the year, the highest, you know, those kind of lists. We like to to look at lists in terms of best of the year mm-hmm. uh, when it comes around this time of, of December. So having said that, I went on transfer market and I decided to stumble upon the most valuable players in the world according to Transfer Market. Can you give me the top 10? Okay, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to get them all, but I, I think I'm going to get at least three or four right right off the bat. How's that? Okay, okay. go so for it. First one I'm going to give you is, is, is a young boy that we all are very, um, we talk about him a lot, um, fabulous striker at Borussia Dortmund, Erling Holland. Erling Holland just made the list, actually. He's wow. 10th. And I'm getting... At a hundred million. At a hundred million. Okay. Easy squeezy, Kylian Mbappe. Kylian Mbappe reigns supreme at number one with a hundred and eighty million as his market value. I've got to imagine Neymar's on this list. Neymar is also on this list at third with a hundred and twenty-eight million. I still think Lionel Messi's on this list. Lionel Messi, despite <laughs> being in the hundred million range, is twelfth. Wow, that's my first miss. Um, all right. So if he's 12th, then I've got to think CR seven is also off of this list then. So that's right. Um, Robert Lewandowski might be on the list. Are you going to give, I'm going to give you, I'll give you Lewandowski. It is not Robert Lewandowski. Okay. He's not on the list. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a few hints. Oh, I, I want to give you one more. Yeah, sure. I want to give you it. Kevin De Bruyne. Kevin De Bruyne is seventh on this list okay. at 120 million as okay. his market value. So I've got Holland, Bappe, Neymar, De Bruyne. Um, yeah. Just running through some teams real quick. Uh, oh, Virgil Van Dyke. Virgil Van Dyke is not on this list. Wow. He is 24th. Wow. Okay. So that's going to mean also. But you're but you're on the right track. Oh wow. You, they are. They do play in England. Okay. And they're um, in the prime of their career. If that makes any difference. It's not going to, you know, for laughs, I'm going to put Christian Pulisic out there. No, no, it's not okay. him. Um, prime of their career plays in England. Some of, some of them are even considered the best in their position, if you want to go that route. Wow, who am I missing? Who am I missing? Best in their position. There's one, player. Right, how about this? There's one more player in La Liga. 
There's only one more player in La Liga. That's in this top 10. Oh, Joao Felix? Joao Felix at, in ninth place. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I've got so far Holland, Mbappe, Neymar, Joao Felix, Kevin De Bruyne, five, right? Five more. All of them play in England. All of them play in England. Yep. Wow. Um, Timo Werner? Nope. No. And, and, I, and for that matter, then not Kai Havertz either. And no. you're sitting up these, these are these are guys that have uh, that are like I said in the prime of their career, so in their 26, 27, 28 range. Wow, who am I missing? Hold on, uh, Harry Kane. Harry Kane in sixth place with 120 million. Well, I didn't expect him to be there. Um, okay, uh, so that's six more English. Uh, I'm gonna go. Let me give you Sadio Mane. Sadio Mane in fourth place at 120 million. Wow, um, that's pretty high up the food chain for him. Um, so that's seven. Uh, let's see who else would we want to pick in England. Um, Dominic Calvert Lewin, but I don't think so. No, no, okay. no, nope. no. These are, like I said, one of the best in their position. Boy, I'm, I'm missing. I'm missing maybe Allison, but um. No, no goalkeeper. Yeah, I was saying, yeah, goalkeeper wouldn't make sense. I'll give you, I'll give you another hint. Okay. Wingers, they're wingers. Wingers, wingers, wingers. Um, not Mason Mount. No. Are there any Chelsea players at this point? No, there. I was no going to say because I think all the only one I've left off is Kai Havertz. So they okay. I'll I'll give you the hint. There's there's three players left. Two of them play at Liverpool. Okay. One of them plays at Manchester City, but one of them is not a winger. So we have two wingers and a defender. So how about Raheem Sterling? Raheem Sterling is second at 128 million. So then we got two Liverpool players. Um, yep. Mo Salah. Mo Salah in fifth with 120 million. There's one more. And who am I missing? Oh, um, consider- uh, 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 Trent Alexander Arnold. Trent Alexander Arnold at the right back in eighth place at 110 million. So as the list follows, from first to tenth, we have Kylian Mbappe with 180 million. Raheem Sterling, Neymar, both of them in second and third, respectively, 128 million. At 120 million, going from fourth all the way to seventh, Sadio Mane, Mohamed Farah, Harry Kane, and Kevin De Bruyne. Trent Alexander Arnold at 110 million in eighth. And the last two are Joe Felix and Erling Haaland at 100 million. Great question, my friend. Great, great question. So. And a heck of a way to close out uh, 2020. So without further ado, my friend, let's hit the closing music. Let's do it. All right, here we go. Last time for 2020. So for episode 309 of Low Limit Football, special thanks again to Kalen Kyle for joining us. We will be off for the Christmas holiday, returning back to you on January 3rd, 2021. Uh, hopefully with a better situation in the world. Uh, and hopefully everybody is very happy and very healthy as we start off the new year. So for episode 309 of Low Limit Football, I'm Joe Ucello. Thanks for listening, everyone. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and good night.